0: We're gonna be all right. I wanna see you fly. Come on, let's go. Let's go with grace. Hey, and welcome to the Soul Force Podcast. Go with grace. Responding to white Christian supremacy with resistance and resilience. Here we ask, what is white Christian supremacy, and how does it show up in our daily lives? I'm your host, Grace Nichols. This week, I'm in conversation with Cassandra Kalin and Megan Sharkey. Cassandra, who also goes by CeCe, is Soulforce's board chair, and Megan is the director of Ruckus, They are partners, trained social workers, and longtime supporters and friends of Soulforce. Our conversation illuminates the ways that white Christian supremacy shapes systems of oppression and impacts our perception of self and self-worth. CeCe makes some incredible points about how biblical messaging is taken out of context to create oppressive and unrealistic societal standards, And Megan offers some really lovely guidance on empowering oneself through political consciousness and community connections. As a heads up, we are bringing the Go With Grace podcast to a close. I've truly enjoyed being on this learning journey with y'all. Despite the increasingly chaotic moment we find ourselves in, I am hopeful for the future. I'm inspired by all of us who are willing to continue forward with honesty, grit, rest, creativity, and joy in the face of our hardships. I know that if we continue to deepen our understanding of our world, each other and spirit, we'll never be wrong. This is a really wonderful episode to end on. I hope you enjoy my conversation with CC, Kalen and Megan Sharkey.
1: Do you want to introduce yourself? Sure. My wife. <laughs> I'm Megan's wife. <laughs> no. Um, so, do I say my name?
0: Yes, I'd love to know uh, who you are and what you do in the world.
1: So I am Cassandra. I am a licensed clinical social worker, and within that, I provide outpatient mental health therapy to people who need it. I work with children, I work with adults, I work with couples um, and families, and I really love the work that I do. Um, So that's sort of my 9 to 5. It's more like a 9 to 7, but... (laughs) And specifically with Soulforce, I use those skills and other skills to function as the chair of the board. Um, and I've been in that role since January of 2020, I think. You've been the board chair for over a year. Mhm. Mm-hmm.
0: And I feel like <laughs> your connections to Soulforce run a lot deeper than that as oh, well.
1: <laughs> yeah, before joining the board, um I was a fan and then I was a program participant in 2015 with the Southeast House for about a year. But I've just kind of stayed connected since then, so I've been in relationship with Salesforce for 8 years in a couple different ways and angles. Mm-hmm. It to me. passing it to you. My name is Megan. I am Cassandra's wife spouse partner husband. Husband <laughs> all of the things. I'm also a social worker not clinically trained um but more like a macro level social worker so policy program development evaluation and like nonprofit management. I've been with Salesforce as the director of Ruckus. Yep i.e. the director of operations, not always in this role. I think I got into this role within the past fiscal year and I started part-time with the org in spring of 2020, right around when the pandemic was first starting. Really? Yeah. I think so, yeah. What else do I do besides work? I'm a mental health peer, um, and I use peer. I define peer as anyone who self-identifies as someone with mental health and or substance use challenges. I'm also an auntie to two little two little ones that live up in Jersey and a third one on the way. Yeah, I'm a gardener. I like to roller skate and I am a sci-fi nerd, fantasy too.
0: Wow, a well-rounded <laughs> crew. And We try. No. Um, and of course this is all going to be audio so folks can't see how just cuddly and uh, loving and adorable y'all look uh, sitting next to each other being very sweet and talking about y'all's lives I appreciate that this morning (laughs) (laughs) and i love to touch back on two things right quick the southeast house I don't know that we've actually talked about that on this podcast so Cece would you mind just telling us a little bit about that program
1: It was really cool. It was a cohort of I think six or seven of us. Um, And I want to say I want to say it was all Black, Southern, queer people. Um, Anywhere from like early 20s to probably mid-30s. I don't know if it was built to be that way, but it was this really cool like We all had a lot in common or were in similar stages of life and we were all asking questions and I think came to that program to ask questions in community about about community, about God and about spiritual practice and just to sort of contextualize all of that within being people of color and being in the South. And it was this really cool moment of exploring culture and history and ancestry and We got to work with mentors um, throughout the program. We got to come together from wherever in the South we were throughout the throughout the year, I think probably four times. um, Just to like be in shared space and do workshops and um, just a lot of skill building and reflection and spirit work. That was really, really fun and cool. And I think particularly illuminating and, enlightening for a lot of us to be able to ask those questions in community in ways that weren't suffocated by like Christian or church imperatives around like this is what you have to do or this is what you're allowed to think about we were just able to be curious about anything that we were curious about and it ended uh with a what are they called freedom ride no I always do that
0: equality rides. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, throughout the south we visited a couple different universities and it was a really good time
0: yes I remember I think learning about the equality rights was one of my first interactions with soul force I feel like I've mentioned here before but I grew up overseas on military bases so it was all online that I heard about these things and I um, was always interested and enticed by those initiatives, it seemed like a really powerful initiative asking questions about spirit and community feels like one of the most powerful aspects. And I think a lot of people are reluctant to pursue healing modalities uh, because it won't coincide with their day, they won't have time to implement, or there's honestly so much that it feels hard to try to even tap into any of that. So it's really wonderful to name that you kind of need a specific container to even acknowledge and work through some things. And so, Megan, I definitely want to get to you and hopefully we can get there by proposing this broad question about how do y'all see white Christian supremacy in your work? And if you feel comfortable, Cece, we can kind of start with you maybe in in a little bit more of sort of the day to day mental health and social work care. And then we can jump to what that maybe looks like on the macro level.
1: And I have an interesting perspective. Because while my educational and professional background is macro social work, my individual experience is of a person with mental health struggles who mm-hmm. participates in therapy and who has is working on processing a lot of spiritual trauma mm-hmm. um, from young adolescence. And it's tied into my recovery journey. A lot of my recovery journey has been mm-hmm accepting myself doing that like conflict identity work and trying to figure out how i can be true and authentic megan but anyways i think we started with you
0: yeah i i, I do have a follow up question right now cool. if that's okay <laughs> yeah we can yeah. kick it back and forth if that feels good to y'all could you actually take us through what you just said the conflict identity process? Was that the word you used? So for example, yeah. what what does that mean and how does somebody work through that?
1: So identity development mm-hmm. is okay. essential for every being. And we create meaning from a young age through socialization and through what people model around us. And so we learn what's Correct and what's not correct. So for me, my identity development as a kiddo was that um, it's correct to go to church every Sunday morning. It's correct to marry a man. It's correct. My brother takes out the trash and I do the dishes. All of these these things were were giving me signals as to how to be and how to identify with the external world. As well as create identity for myself. And that resulted in me creating identities that didn't really fit once I was able to leave my hometown and have opportunity to experience communities, cultures, interactions that look different than my hometown did, which was white, middle class, straight Christian up in the Jersey suburbs. And I had to put that there and then understand how I can grow from it and apply it differently to my, my identity now. So, yeah, I think, I'm not sure if I I gave you an answer there, but that's what my thoughts have.
0: Yeah. I think broadly, if I can summarize what you're naming is like, we are told there's a very specific way to be in the world. That is correct. That if we dig into the white Christian supremacy side of it actually also has a moral value. So there's a, a way of being that is correct and that is also good that we're told. And then if we happen to have an individual experience that doesn't align with those things, if we are queer or trans, if uh, we are Black or brown, if we're in a different uh, socioeconomic situation, all of a sudden there are these messages that those experiences are not good. So it sounds like you kind of had to wrestle with those things and work out for yourself, all of that messaging, like kind of deciphering what is true and what is not.
1: Mm -hmm. And why do I seem to feel differently about this thing that's occurring when other people I'm around don't seem to see it as an issue?
0: Right. So the, the messages are prolific, you know, they come at us from many different places So what are maybe some of the tools you could describe to work out that dissonance? Like, I've been told I'm not good in so many ways. So then how do we we actually circumvent that type of messaging?
1: Yeah, yeah. My process involved basically putting a lot of distance between me and religion and Christian spaces for a great number of years, basically from like my late teens to right about when I started working with Soulforce. <laughs> <laughs> the strategies that I engaged with, um, I started going to therapy probably six years ago. I think also um, some political consciousness raising within myself is a part of the strategies to help me heal. Um, and what I mean by that is is learning some of the systems of power in the world and how they affect our daily lives and kind of taking some of my individual experiences and seeing them on the community level, because I'm not the only queer person who feels that I'm living in a, a homophobic, heteronormative world. And it it's less about me being wrong or me being sick. And it shifts to a community issue and a resource issue and it's it's not specific to me. So that has helped to just widen my perspective, I think, on what I'm experiencing. And then going, getting a bachelor's of social work. I also have a master's of social work, but learning more about what mental health is, how our brain works and how trauma affects our brain. And again, the same instance of learning that this is not only me who's dealing with this, that this is happening to a lot of different people and it happens in a lot of different ways and leaving myself the space to feel the things and to create meaning for myself and struggle on the path to wellness, I guess. (laughs) Continue Mm -hmm. to struggle some days.
0: Yes, I definitely wrote down it's a continuous process as well-adjusted as some of us might become might feel when the messaging is so prolific over our lifespan and all around us from many angles media the bible church communities general community it's not like you know go to a couple therapy sessions and we've kind of unworked all that stuff (laughs) and the the community part feels especially key because of course everything feels so much more intense in isolation. You know, the strategy of white Christian supremacy is to tell us that we are wrong and make Mm -hmm. us feel terrible about ourselves. But that political consciousness you mentioned, seems like making sure we have more information. So to know that there's actually systems and power in place that are telling us lies about ourselves to to maintain power. And so it's like learning how the world is set up. And And hopefully that that feels helpful to people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I certainly want to give Cece a a chance to hop in here. How do you see these things at play in your day-to-day work?
1: Yeah, I think one of the simplest ways to connect it is this concept of sin. That is like kind of the foundation of Christianity. Many, many, many of the things that people... Who do not identify as christian come to see me about are feeling problematic because of this socialization around what qualifies as sin so i just pulled up the seven deadly sins to just be like hmm, hmm. and people feel bad about wanting things right these ideas of like envy or greed you're not supposed to want things that other people have, you're not supposed to want more than you have already, and so Christian ideology gets socialized into us outside of Christian context where these things that are otherwise considered Christian sins are also just bad behavior but it it is additionally built into I think how we understand capitalism and productivity and being like a good contributing member of society, all of these things have to do with accept what you have, don't ask for more um, or you are greedy or you are envious or you are bad. Um, And so from that like really basic level, people don't even feel like they're allowed to want more than they have or something other than they have. Because I think at a, you know, three levels or layers down, we've, thought of just having desire as sinful. But then we also get into anger, we get into um, lust or pride, and so people feel like they can't be proud of themselves. They feel like they can't celebrate themselves. All of these things that lead to low self-esteem and isolation and dissatisfaction and anxiety that just come from people being told you can't want or be desired or have connections or, or indulge or feel proud of yourself. And that ships and chips and chips away at a person's spirit or relationship with themselves. And I think when they come to me or when they're experiencing this and, and having questions about it in themselves, they're not thinking about it in a Christian context, but it is, I think, part of that pervasiveness of white Christian supremacy, where morality, or these things that are otherwise thought of as sin become good and bad behavior and pathologized. Um, And then they come to my office so we can unlearn what that is and how it's impacted them.
0: I really loved the connections you were making about the socialization around the seven deadly sins. So, you know, Soulforce is working to to support people who've been harmed by uh, religious trauma, uh, spiritual violence, and also... Uh, support people who want to be an allyship or an advocacy to theologically support queer trans and other marginalized people. So briefly, if we could sort of workshop, we have sort of some ongoing definitions. How would you define uh, spiritual violence?
1: Really I think, simply what's coming to mind for me is anytime that someone else tries to tell me how to connect with divine mm-hmm. and to be in communal spaces with my higher power. You know, I think when there's set guidelines for how you can reach Jesus or God, mm-hmm. you need to say the rosary four times, et cetera, et cetera. If you do it outside of that, you're doing it wrong. Mm-hmm. So I, I think it's a it's a limitation. It's putting a box around something and like putting a formula that everybody needs to take a one size fits all and mm-hmm. I did not fit in that formula so it was just all damnation yeah <laughs>
0: damnation <laughs> <laughs> uh, fire and, song. and yeah that's such a painful messaging like well you're damned to hell and good luck with that
1: <laughs> uh-huh yeah and it's like well okay then I don't want anything to do with this <laughs>
0: uh-huh
1: well it's like <laughs> It's, I think it's whichever one that you're looking at first. So it sounds like you were talking about infusing violence into spirituality and people being violent about the ways that they like control your access to divinity. I think the other way of looking at it is infusing spirituality into violence, which is anytime someone is oppressive or violent or toxic to someone else, that in and of itself is painful but then when I sanction it with God if I say like God is okay with me doing this to you or God told me to do this to you that's me then putting spirituality into my violence that says like well you can't have any problems with it you can't be upset about it you have no recourse um, and nothing will save you from this and so the difference between me telling someone that um, if they wear a short skirt then they deserve bad things to happen to them Versus like, if they wear a short skirt, then God wants bad things to happen to them. It just like takes it up a hundred notches and I think adds an element of hopelessness and powerlessness to Mm. an already victimizing experience.
0: Right, because I think what you said is really explicit. And there are certainly pulpits who say very explicit things like that. But what happens is those types of messages get passed down over time and ingrained in our culture. But what then would a process of flipping that script look like?
1: The other uh, of the seven deadly sins that I was looking at is Sloth, which I think is really interesting. It's maybe the one that people think about least, but that feels most connected to the ways that white Supremacy and Christian supremacy and capitalism all hang out together um, where people feel like if they don't work hard enough, then such and such that happens to them is their fault. Or if they did work hard enough, then they would have what they wanted. And so what it takes out is the accountability of systems, which are intentionally creating barriers for us to have access to things and saying, no, it's on you. If you were not being sinful in your slothfulness and your laziness, then you would have this thing. Um, But I think it also creates this really suffocating set of expectations that people have of themselves, regardless of their circumstances. And so those expectations need to change, not your capacity, because that's not how anything works. And so it is this process of identifying what are the expectations that you're even holding yourself to. What is keeping you internally? We're not even going to talk about systems yet, but what's keeping you from being able to do that? And then identifying where do the expectations come from? Are those the things that you expect of yourself or are those other people's voices asking that of you? Um, And then how do we start to shift your relationship to those expectations and then being able to develop for yourself based on my limitations, my strengths, my skills, my capacity, here's what I expect of myself and kind of like bump anybody else who's not pleased Um, because their expectations of me are not based in either where I'm actually at or what I want to be doing, and they are rooted in a system that otherwise is meant to cut me out. Yeah, and I think an additional empowering act that can help kind of transfer some of those internal experiences into what's happening in your external world, for me, is through community connecting Mm -hmm. And so speaking with other individuals who live with anxiety and depression, seeing how it shows up with them, how it affects their productivity mm-hmm. and asking them for strategies because everybody's recovery story looks different. The way that everybody finds healing or wellness is different. And then those connections are also They were a big part of what I spoke with earlier about my identity development, feeling okay with myself as a queer person. A lot of that came from meeting, loving, enjoying being friends with other queer people. And like through my love for them, I was able to love myself. And through their love for me, I was able to be like, oh my gosh, okay, (laughs) I'm great.
0: Yeah, I'm great. Yeah, that's what (laughs) I was just going to say. Yes, y'all are great. Yes, what I, if I can reflect back, the, the process was, is a little bit of like asking, what are the messages you've received about your life? What is your relationship to those messages? And then I think, what kind of context are we existing in? So I'm thinking about like people who are um, housing compromised and, you know, someone's like, just get a job. And they they're not taking into consideration racism, uh, any disability, any type of barrier that any uh, systemic barrier that that person might be facing where they couldn't just get a job um, and sort of pull themselves out of a situation when they actually live in a society that doesn't make it easy for that person to care for themselves. Did you have a thought on that?
1: is going to say, uh, yeah, they can't get a job because on the job application. It asks for your home of residence to fill it out. So just start in there.
0: Mm-hmm. Any other systems having to do with uh, education and, and access to, to resources? And it's really important to have a look at all those things. It's interesting mm-hmm. when we can do that political consciousness work, how it actually facilitates more empathy it feels like a truer empathy than like just being nice to someone.
1: Yeah. Yeah. For me, I think white Christian supremacy taught me that the individual is responsible for their situation, that bootstrap mentality.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: What feels more true to me today and what I've learned through my political consciousness raising and my psychoeducation is that the issues are more, are systemic. And they're way more complicated and harder to resolve than an explanation of being like, you know, Megan's depression is something related to myself and not like a chemical imbalance or systems. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so. Yeah. Hmm.
0: Yes, all really, really good points, really similar experience I've had throughout my whole life. And any type of messaging uh, that I can be let know that it's not me specifically, I'm not bad um, because I'm having a hard time about something. It's been really helpful.
1: What's funny, what's coming to mind for me right now, we were, I grew up in a very, very Christian household. And so we were kind of obsessed with the Bible Um, as children, like we loved it. And our parents would give us specific Bible verses to like memorize and specifically become obsessed with. And we would run through the house screaming this Bible verse because it was so much fun. And one of the ones that we would scream. And I think our parents would kind of like repeat back to us was if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? And I think that that Bible verse comes from, (laughs) comes from Genesis and was said by God to Cain when God asked for the sacrifice of the offering, and Cain brought vegetables, and no, Abel brought vegetables and Cain brought meat or whatever. But ultimately, it was those three beings. it was God, Cain, and Abel, and the one being that could be disappointed and that had the standard was God. I don't know how he was supposed to know that God wanted meat and not vegetables, but the point is, we now take that concept and we apply it to a world where there is, rather than two humans and one God, I don't know, six billion humans. And specifically, I hear people saying that about police brutality and police killing some Black people. If you did the right thing, this wouldn't have happened. If you do what is right, will you not be accepted if you had done this and this and kept your hands on the wheel and not talk back and whatever? But it is not Me offering God a pile of vegetables and God being like, that's not good enough. This is me with another flawed human or with another person who was raised in the same system, but for some reason has been given so so much power to then execute at the same level as this like other verse that we take out of context being about like God and the other two humans that I don't even know if that makes sense, but this idea of if you do what is right, will you not be accepted, I think has been taken not only out of the context that was used in the Bible, but out of the Bible altogether to be created as a societal standard. And rather than God, there are these like random ass other humans who get to be the arbiter of what is right and accept or or reject people. And so the the framing no longer applies. It doesn't make sense or work anymore, but we still kind of perpetuate it to one another and teach it to our children. Mm -hmm.
0: So they can scream it running around the house. That absolutely makes sense. And this conversation could go on forever. And I'll try not to keep y'all um too long. And that's where we do see that intersection of Christian supremacy and white supremacy and the Bible specifically being wielded to give some groups of people power and then to disempower other groups of people. And it's a it's a very death dealing strategy, and we like to frame it specifically in the terms of white Christian supremacy to name that faith, faith practices, Christianity doesn't have to be that way. So there, there's lots of possibility to express Christianity in a way that is healing and empowering and unfortunately, dominant mm-hmm. expressions of Christianity are quite harmful And I think we've made a lot of really good connections here today.
1: Thank you, Grace. It's good to talk with you.
0: Thank y'all. I really enjoyed our conversation. I'm happy to see y'all. I really appreciate y'all and your time and your work.
1: Thank you. Thank you you for your
0: time. Have a great day. I'll talk to you later. Bye. Bye thank you thank you thank you for tuning in to our final episode of go with grace in the show notes you'll find links to soul force's resources and current programming if you'd like to learn more about soul force's rich history including information about the southeast house and the equality rides there's a link for that too if you've benefited from this podcast Please consider making a donation to Soulforce so they can continue providing this important political education and healing work. You can stay in touch with Soulforce by subscribing to their newsletter or following on social media. They are at Soulforce.org on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can also email hello at soulforce.org. Go With Grace is written and produced by me. I also wrote the theme song. Additional music by Blue Sky Moon, Ketsa, and Audio Rizzo. Be sure to check out all of our other episodes on Spotify and Podbean and continue to rate and review so others find this podcast. With gratitude, I say goodbye. And as always, Go With Grace, my friends.